Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll still hang on to those last couple of verses of chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find that on page 978. 978 in a pew Bible. I have uh, this picture. This is the path of life. So I explained that last week. Uh, it fit really well with where we were at last week, that Paul is describing essentially the path of life the believers ought to walk in. Uh, it will not directly unfold out of the verses we're going to look at this morning, but I kept the, the picture up on the screen for this week as well. I'm going to start with a quote, an introduction from a man named Michael Reeves, who I, had, I don't remember ever hearing this person's name before, uh, and I had to look him up to try to figure out, is this Michael Reeves living or dead? Um, he's living, he's in Britain, Great Britain, and that's probably one reason why I'm unfamiliar with him. But he seems, he's, he's a good guy. He's uh, collaborated in times past with Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul. Uh, he's collaborated with John Piper, Desiring God. So he's, he's in the camp of very good, conservative uh, Bible teachers, theologians. He's a... Uh, theologian himself, a, a professor, a historian, an author. He's, he's quite accomplished. And I have a pastor acquaintance in uh, one of the large groups I'm in on Facebook who shared a tweet by him. And that's where I became familiar with his name. And the tweet was like, it was really good. So I, I looked him up on Twitter and uh, followed him. I don't do much on Twitter. Like, if I, five minutes a day is probably overstating it, but uh, his, some of his tweets were really good, and this one in particular really captured my attention. Now, if you dissect it, you'd have to clarify it a little bit. Uh, I don't tweet, but I think there's a limit how much you can say, so I suppose in a lot of cases, if you're a, if you're a tweeter, that you have to limit what you say. But his tweet goes like this. Believers will become more Christ-like over time, but never more righteous. Our righteous status is all Christ, not the result of our self-improvement. Man, I read that and I'm like, boom! If I could tweet like that, I would tweet. Uh, but I, would, I, could, I can't be that succinct. That's a really good statement. That's a really good statement. It kind of captures the book of Ephesians. Because when he talks about our righteous status is all Christ, he's talking about Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. That just lay the groundwork. Just to be clear, if you are righteous before God, it was not you. It was God's doing in Christ. It was by His grace received by faith. That's the first three chapters of Ephesians. But when Michael Reeves says believers will become more Christ-like over time, he's talking about Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6. And that's where we're at. We're in chapter 5. And he's saying, look, you're gonna, you need to be more Christ-like. This is what it looks like because of what God has done in Christ in those first three chapters. So I thought that was a really good way to capture... Uh, the book of Ephesians and where we're at in particular. Today we're going to do verses 5, 6, and 7. Really, we're just going to barely touch 7, which kind of sets up the next few verses. It's a transition verse, but I think I'll probably wind up reading it. Really, our, the balance of our time will be spent in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 5. But by way of a little bit of context, we're going to look at 
uh, start all the way back to chapter 4 and verse 31, and then go through uh, verse 5 before we get to 5 and 6. What we're going to be talking about a little bit, or building on from last week, is the matter of sexual ethics, what the Bible has to do, the Christian sexual ethic. So back in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 31, it reads like this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And then the but instead part, though he doesn't use that transition, but instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the last two verses in chapter four, we spent one week on. The first two verses of chapter five, we spent one week on. Last week, we looked at verses 3 and 4, and we spent our time on that. Those two verses read like this. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, on any given Sunday... Uh, one of my jobs in getting ready for any given Sunday is to figure out uh, how much to read and what to read on any given Sunday. Out of I've got way too many books, uh, but not enough. Uh, both are true at the same time. So on any given Sunday, I probably read maybe 25% of what I could read on Ephesians. I just only have so much time, and I, I kind of know the reason. As they, they start emerging to the top, the ones that I think are going to be most helpful. But I'm sure I'm missing some, but I, I just don't have that much time. Uh, but I do the best I can, and then I've got to figure out how do I whittle it down, and what do, I, what do I present on a Sunday morning? What do I talk about on a Sunday morning? Because there's only so much time. Now, Darwin gave me a little extra, and I'm wasting it right now telling you the story. <laughs> but I realize, after I'm done on any Sunday, how much more... I could have said, or I wish I'd said, or I'll read, as I'm getting ready for next Sunday, I'll read things that still apply to what we just covered. And I'm like, oh, I wish I had more time to do that. So I kind of want to look back at verses three and four just a little bit and, and have you consider it in a little bit different light to set up verses five and six. Now, last week on, on those two verses, without unpacking all that we did last week, a really easy application was I compared verses three and four to TV. Not that this is the only way that a, a proper ethic could be violated, but it's an easy way to talk about because probably everybody knows what a TV is, and you probably all have TVs. And it doesn't mean everything on TV is bad or sinful, but it does mean that TV in general has a lot of filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking, and it's out of place. That's just true. It's an, easy, it's an easy thing to pick on, and you're like, well, I don't watch TV. TV's not my thing. I think you're still going to be challenged by verses 3 and 4 because it goes beyond TV, but 3 and 4 is just a really good way to apply what Paul is saying. That ought not to characterize the church or Christians. But not everybody in church history could apply it to TV because not everybody's had TV. I've never not known TV. 
That's how young I am. If you were really old, you could think of a day before there was TV, but I, from the very, as far back as I can remember, I can remember, and it was black and white, and it was the size of a small boulder, but, but it was a TV. But if you go back to John Gill in the 18th century, he was an English Baptist, so uh, he's of our, uh, of our, I'm not sure the right word, of our stripe. Uh, John Gill when he's applying verses 3 and 4, he can't say, and that's why you shouldn't have a TV, or that's why you need to be careful about what you watch on TV. How did he apply uh, a Christian sexual ethic to his time and his culture? Here's what he said. By, by the way, his commentaries are freely available. You can find them on the internet uh, because it's all public domain. Here's what John Gill said concerning sexual immorality and impurity. These may include all filthy gestures and behavior, every indecent habit and attire, and all actions which have a tendency to excite lust, and also all impure words. These discover an impure heart and are the means of corrupting men's minds and manners. Filthy speaking is a verbal commission of the things that are spoken of, and it may include all impure songs and books and the reading or hearing of them. He had no problem applying verses 3 and 4. And no matter what era you live in, if you were to go back as to the first century, I think they had no problem applying verses 3 and 4 to their culture. Because in the heart of people is sin barring the grace of God. And our sin will find ways to express itself, barring the grace of God. So that's how John Gill applied uh, uh, and commented on this idea of sexual immorality and impurity. But if I speed it up a little bit, this is before the American Revolution. He died in 1771. If I speed it up to an American Presbyterian by the name of Albert Barnes, he thinks of it or applied it in a little bit different way. And Albert Barnes is interesting in what he says is partly humorous uh, because he's kind of a dour-looking fellow. Uh, and so his comment on, on verses 3 and 4, it reflects his dourness. Now, I realize in their era, he probably is smiling. Like, people didn't smile back in those days for pictures, but it's still kind of funny in light of what he, uh, how he appears what he said. So here's how he commented on the passage. Cheerfulness is not forbidden. Pleasantry cannot be forbidden. I mean that a quiet and gentle humor that arises from good nature and that makes one good natured in spite of himself. Like in other words, I kind of get the idea he would go through life looking exactly like that. But eventually there's things that make him just crack a bit of a smile in spite of himself. And he's like, that wasn't a sin. It was just good-natured in spite of myself. (laughs) But then he goes on, But levity and jesting, though often manifested by ministers and other Christians, are inconsistent with true dignity as with the gospel. Where were they seen in the conversation of the Redeemer? Where in the writings of Paul? Now, I don't know how you understand that or how you take that when when he's commenting on what he believes is a violation of that ethic in verses 3 and 4. But I would say part of my upbringing in my teenage years, uh, the church culture was, it was very light. And there was a lot of levity. 
and there was a lot of joking. And I enjoyed church back then because it was like going to hear a stand-up comedian because that's what church was kind of about. Somebody that could make you laugh and tell lots of stories and, and there'd be a Bible verse in there. I mean, there would be a Bible verse, but you weren't there for the Bible verse. You were there for all these wonderful stories that made you laugh and they were so funny. And, and it drew pretty big crowds back in the day. And I think Albert Barnes would look at that and say, we violated the dignity of the gospel. It doesn't mean that we can't smile and celebrate Christ's resurrection. We certainly ought to do that. But the, the gospel is so important that it ought not to be somehow diminished or its glory taken away from because we're just here to have a good time. The gospel is also very serious because it determines destinies. The kingdom of heaven and separation from God for eternity. So there's a certain soberness about the gospel, even as we celebrate it. But the last one that I thought was most interesting is from the Interpreter's Bible Commentary, 12 volumes that Debbie Webb found at a resale shop and gave to me. And I wasn't sure if I wanted them. I've told the story before, but uh, she offered them to me. And I'm like, sure, I'll take a look. Because I'd seen them in, you go to a, a very big used bookstore in a, in a good-sized city. They probably have a set of those sitting on, on the shelf for not a lot of money, and I've always thought, how good could they be? They came from a, uh, a Methodist uh, printing house. Uh, I tend to think Methodist is liberal, although that's not entirely always the case. I realize that's not always entirely fair. Uh, and this is 1953, and it turns out in 1953, they were a lot more biblical than I ever imagined. And how good these, this set of uh, commentaries really are it's fascinating. I love going to these. So the interpreter's Bible commenting on sexual immorality and impurity says this. Are our Broadways and our Hollywoods reverting to the unrestrained worship of the lusts of the flesh? That's in 1953. He's commenting on the lax immorality or the lax purity in the church and our culture. In 1953, if we were to go back to 1953, you would think we are living in the Victorian age if we took our people and put them back then. He talks about free divorce, meaning, I mean, there are occasions for a biblical divorce in Scripture. He's talking about the idea of this no-fault, easy-to-have divorce. Free divorce, making of marriage, licensed fornication. And professors of sociology substituting statistics of animalism for the law of God. Now, what he means there is people that are willing to say, well, that's what it looks like the Bible says, but sociology has discovered this is true. And because sociologists have discovered this is true, the Bible can't really mean that because sociology really, in a sense, trumps what the Bible says. Or psychology has discovered this. Or science has discovered this. Therefore, God couldn't have actually created in six days. Or there couldn't have actually been a flood that destroyed the world. Those things couldn't have happened because of science. Or psychology or sociology. He then goes on to say, or this commentary says, a reading of the signs of the times in our day of moral decay should be full of warnings. 
Think, for example, of how frequently artistic genius is exempted in popular and even responsible Christian judgment for moral standards. So he's going to uh, go on to say that in the name of, of individual expression, artistic genius, somehow uh, those individuals or, or that segment of society, God's word really doesn't apply because they're just being themselves. They're just artistically expressing themselves. So... Think, for example, how frequently artistic genius is exempted in popular and even responsible Christian judgment from moral standards. The very word artist connotes the life of bohemia. Bohemia is a wandering lifestyle, a fluid ethic. It changes, uh, it, it morphs, it evolves. It's not constant, it's, uh, it's wandering. Not merely in dress or culinary habits, but in ethical behavior as well. And all is excused on the ground that art is a thing of the spirit and not of the body, and lives according, accordingly in a divine realm of its own, and is freed from the restraints of proper to ordinary men and women. And so in 1953, what they're saying is, they're, what they're appealing to is a standard of truth for behavior that is not fluid and it doesn't change. It's constant. And the church is called to that kind of holiness. It then winds up with this statement. Christians may indeed be called upon once more to take literally the counsel of Paul, quote from Corinthians, wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. In 1953, calling the church to be separate, to be different from the world, to not excuse it, to not compromise it, but be true to God's word in your ethics and your morality. That's what Paul's calling the church to, Christians to, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, in our speech, in our actions, in our motivations, in our temperaments. It all is to be under the authority and in submission to Christ as Lord. And we are to be imitators of God accordingly. Kent Hughes uh, pastored up at Wheaton or College Church in Wheaton, Illinois for a good number of years. Uh, he wrote Disciplines of a Godly Man, which are men did many, probably the first book we did in a men's book discussion. Um, he wrote a number of other books. He did some commentaries. A really terrific guy. He grew up in California uh, when he retired from uh, vocational ministry up at College Church. I think he's moved back to California. Uh, turned 80 last year. He's 81 now. He kind of uses an illustration uh, of cookies uh, to illustrate this particular principle, what's going on about coming out from among them and being separate. And he describes um, a mother who's baked a fresh batch of cookies. And she's told everybody in the family they're not to, not to get in the cookies. The cookies are for later. I'll let you know. Like, like after dinner, everybody's eating their vegetables. Uh, Brian's all about the vegetables. After you've had the vegetables, then you can have the cookies. And so it's not very long after that that she hears, she hears a noise that it sounds like somebody's getting in the cookies. And so she asks her son, like, you know, son, what are you doing? What's going on in there? And he replies kind of meekly, sheepishly, he's like, my hands in the cookie jar resisting temptation. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, Ken Hughes says, you know, when our hand is in the cookie jar, it's kind of hard to resist temptation. 
And what are your cookie jars? And, and Kent Hughes uses the TV as well, though he, goes, he makes it very clear it's not just the TV, but the TV is a cookie jar. And if I'm all the time got my hand in the cookie jar, it's going to be hard to resist the temptation. Now, maybe it's a, it's a particular place for you, or maybe it's a particular acquaintance of yours that when you're with that acquaintance, you wind up making some really bad decisions. Uh, maybe it's surfing on the internet. There's nothing wrong with the internet, but it's easy to surf on the internet and wind up succumbing to temptation. So you have to identify, what are the cookie jars in my life where I'm thinking I can have my hand in the cookie jar while I'm resisting the temptation? It's better to get your hand out of the cookie jar. And you'll find resisting the temptation comes a lot easier. He then quotes, uh, this is a quote from Alexander Pope, who lived in the from 1688 to 1744, it's an essay on man, which is a pretty long essay. It's very poetic. But there are these four lines in the essay which read, Vice is a monster of such frightful mean. And mean means demeanor, uh, its, its personality, its character. So that, that vice, that sin, is a monster of such frightful mean character, demeanor, that to be hated needs but to be seen. You can recognize it's a monster. But seen too often, familiar with his face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. If you, look too, if you linger too long at looking at how awful the sin is, you wind up eventually making compromises with that sin. And it winds up controlling you. And so the whole, between the cookie illustration and between these four lines, the idea is remove yourself from the temptation. Temptation isn't sin, unless you know, when I find myself in that tempting situation, as often as not, I'm making the wrong choices. In that case, remove the temptation. Because you know it's leading you down the wrong path. Get rid of the temptation and you will find you've gotten rid of the sin. So Paul issues a two-part warning. Here are new verses. Starts off in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The second part of the warning Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, there are all kinds of red flags in there for a, a secular culture such as ours. Uh, those are not the kind of verses you're going to hear quoted by politicians uh, in order to win the day and sound like they're a little bit religious. Because there's so many offensive things in there, no matter whether you're from the white side or the black side, there's things that people find offensive. When Paul says, everyone who is, and then he lists, but you could put in there, everyone who is a slave to sin has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's offensive in our culture. And, and it's very interesting because I think this is the only time in the New Testament where the kingdom is attributed both to Christ and God at the same time. Now, it's, it's true in different places at different times, but to combine it all together, that's kind of unusual. And it's, 
I think it's especially interesting that and God is added because if Paul had only said everyone who is this has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ, I think some people would be okay with that because they're like, I don't pretend to be a Christian, but I've got a relationship with God. But Paul says, no, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Because if you don't have Christ, you don't have God. The apostle of love, the apostle John, in 1 John, makes that explicitly clear. If you don't have Christ, you don't have God. And if you do have God, you have Christ. Because Christ is God made flesh. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So that's, that's an offense, but that's not the only offense in those two verses. It's also offensive, the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not a popular subject in our culture and in some churches. And then lastly, the sons of disobedience is not a popular idea because we like to think that we're just um, misdirected people. Uh, you don't discipline in school so much. You redirect the students into doing the right thing. You set a good example. We don't need a, a savior who dies on a cross to take away sin. We need somebody who lays down a good example so that we can imitate him when in fact Christ came to die because we are sinners and sin requires death. So lots of things in here that our modern culture doesn't like. Let's start with, you may be sure of this and let no one deceive you. Those two statements that introduce the two-part warning remind me very much of what Paul writes to the Galatians. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That's a a summary of those two verses put together. It's a deception to think otherwise, that somehow we can sin and live the life we want. I will live my own life now and still be in the kingdom of heaven. Paul says, don't kid yourself. Not even close. It doesn't work like that. You may be sure of this. That's a very awkward phrase or phrasing, the words that Paul uses there. And it looks pretty clear in the English Standard Version when he says, you may be sure of this. It captures what Paul's saying. But the way Paul writes it in the Greek, it actually, if you were to literally translate it, it would look something a lot more like, for this you know, knowing. Which is kind of an awkward way to introduce something. Because if Paul had merely said, for this you know that everyone who is sexually immoral uh, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. This you know. That would, that would suffice. But the way he actually writes it is, for this you know knowing. He doubles up with two different words for know in the Greek. And why does he do that? Why does he say, for this you know knowing? He clearly is trying to emphasize something. And it may be he's trying to emphasize this, what I'm going to tell you is a Christian ethic about sexuality is so different from our culture. I've got to impress it upon you. It is true. Does God really require, does he really expect that kind of an ethic? And the answer is yes, he really does. But that is so out of step with what people think in our world. 
in our world, we think if, if you're going to make it in life, you need to make all these compromises and it'll work out. And he's like, no, this you know, knowing. I mean, there's, there's no compromise here. God expects purity and holiness. And there's a right, legitimate expression, and there's lots of ways you can go off. And he says, so this you know, knowing. That's one way to look at the emphasis. Another way to look at the emphasis, which I think is closer to the truth, Paul is appealing to what they know to be true in themselves. Because we are created with a conscience. And we're created with the image of God, though that image has been marred and shattered by sin. But our conscience still witnesses against us. So I'm going to tell you something. Paul's saying, I'm going to tell you something in this area. And in a sense, you already know it to be true. You know it's true. I know it's true. But I need to say it anyway. And so Paul goes into these, this two-part warning. Now, somebody that does the best job at this that I know is Dr. James Greer. Uh, anybody that knows me knows that Dr. Greer is one of my heroes. I can't believe it's been 10 years since he died. I only met and talked with uh, Dr. Greer in his office one time way back before I was married. And Cindy had lots of classes with Dr. Greer. I think there was only one she missed, and she regrets it. When he was at Cedarville, he wound up going to Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary, where he became a dean. He was a theologian, uh, uh, degrees in ethics and knowledge. I mean, he was a philosophy, uh, a brilliant man. And the reason why he's affected me so much is because so many of his lectures are available, and I, I've never stopped listening to them. Uh, every year I listen to some of those lectures, and I've heard them before, but I never get it all the first time anyway. So I keep listening to Dr. Greer, and he's, he's really impacted and shaped how I think about theology and scripture. He's helped me in so many ways. And Dr. Greer is actually at an ABWE conference. So Dave Southwell's from ABWE Missionaries in Pennsylvania. Dr. Greer is there doing a presentation for, I assume they brought in all the missionaries, probably Dave Southwell. I assume he probably would have been there as one of their directors. So he would have heard this live. And Dr. Greer is talking specifically on Romans chapter one, how God has revealed himself in creation and in conscience and how uh, by nature sinners deny and suppress that truth. So he's going to talk about that, and it's a longer clip than I usually play. It's pushing five minutes, but I don't like to cut Dr. Greer short. So I'm going to play five minutes of Dr. Greer. It's also, it's not high-quality fidelity. I mean, I'm not sure when it was done, if it was in the 90s or so. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what era it's from, but there's some static in there. Just tune out the static and listen to what the man says because he captures very nicely this idea of, I'm going to tell you something you know, and you know, it, you know it's true, even though you want to pretend like it isn't true. Dr. Greer. They exchange the truth of God for the lie. Who stands behind the lie? The serpent. Okay? Now here we are faced with the fact that every man is now responding to God's activity. Now this becomes important, at least it does to me. 
Any person you meet, I care not what culture, I care not what education, what language, what level of economic status they have, that person, even though they have never heard the gospel, is already engaged in responding to God's activity of self-disclosure. There isn't a person in the world that doesn't respond. Romans tells us, that the unbeliever suppresses and holds down every self-disclosure of God, both in nature and in himself. You see, the last person, the, the last thing this person needs is more evidence because the evidence is overwhelming and all he does with it is twist it and suppress it. He doesn't need more evidence. <laughs> he needs grace. He needs to have his eyes opened. He needs to come to be able to understand. And he needs to give up. He needs to humble himself under the mighty hand of God and receive as gift that which has been provided through the last Adam. So my goodness, we've got to face the fact that we're not just going out to meet people who somehow are neutral. They are already suppressing every disclosure of God. In their depravity, they hate God. I don't care what else they say. But there's also some very wonderful truth here in Romans 1. It says that no matter how hard they struggle, that there are certain things true about them that we can trade on when it comes to the gospel. They know, first of all, that they're guilty. I was flying back from O'Hare, and... Uh, the gentleman who was sitting next to me asked me what I did. And I said, I'm the dean of the Baptist Seminary. And he said, oh my goodness, you're the kind of people I hate the most in the world. <laughs> you're the most bigoted, intolerant people. You're the most homophobic people you would ever know. And I said, well, what do you do? He said... <laughs> I'm the vice president for international sales for Steelcase. His name was Jim, just like mine. And he went on and said, you're the kind of people, along with many of the churches in our city, who are just so intolerant that you will not give the gay lesbian community any aspect of tolerance and we have to seek laws to protect ourselves from bigots like you. Voice is getting high. <laughs> and uh, then he finally said, well, I'm the spokesperson for the gay lesbian community in Grand Rapids. Hmm. I looked at him and said, sir, could you tell me why, if what you're doing is okay, why do people like me bug you? And I said, let me answer the question for you. <laughs> it's easier when you're witness not to let them ask them all. I said, the reason you hate me is simply this, that no matter how you try to justify what you're doing, deep down before God, you know you're guilty and you're worthy of judgment. This man exploded. <laughs> the stewardess came back and said, you'll have to keep your voices down. He wouldn't take my card. 
he wouldn't shake my hand, we left the plane. Two weeks later, he called me on the phone. He said, you know, what you've said has really bugged me. <laughs> if what we're doing is right, why do people like you bug us? He said, I want to talk to you some more. He canceled six lunch engagements we had. About a month and a half ago, just when I got back from Asia, he called me on the phone. And he said, is there something I could read? So I sent him four books. I asked him to meet with me, and he said no. He said, I travel a lot, but this thing has really gotten me. And I don't recommend it as a style of witnessing. <laughs> but listen, whether you say it or not, there's certain things you know about those lost people that you're dealing with. They are God's creatures. I don't care what they say. Every act of their consciousness is a consciousness of a creature dependent upon God. And Romans tells me that they are indeed not only experiencing the fact that they are guilty, but they also know that they are worthy of death. So along those same lines, I think you could apply it to creation and say, you know, if, if I as a Christian talk about the Bible's uh, account of creation, I think the world knows that's true. Even as they deny it and laugh at it and scoff at it, that I would believe what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1. But they know in their heart it's true. And by having a creator, it makes them accountable to somebody. And so they, they would never give you the impression that is the case, but they know it's true because all of creation witnesses to God's power and his wisdom. And there is an ethic built into our conscience that we harden, we suppress it, we deny it, we compromise it, and it becomes deader and deader. But we know there's a morality, and it's outside of ourselves. So that's Dr. Greer. Verse 5 uses uh, the three words, sexual, uh, talks about those that are sp sexually immoral, impure, and covetous. That ought to remind you of what he said in verse 3 because it's intentional. So in verse 3, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness mu must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. For you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So he's combining the two, the two statements together, verses 3 and then verse 5. Paul is making a declaration concerning an unrepentant sinful lifestyle. He is not making a declaration that Christians have ceased sinning entirely. We have all violated, we've all done what Paul says we ought never to do. We've all done it, whether in thought, word, or deed. Uh, we've all compromised God's holiness. He's not saying that somehow you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He's talking about, I will choose my path in life. I will live my way. And I will die my way. And you will die apart from Christ. And die apart from God. Because nobody goes into the kingdom of heaven your way. You go Christ. So he's talking about a lifestyle, not instances of sin.
If I were to highlight this idea of an inheritance, he's already made it very clear in chapter 1, verses 11 and 19. He's used the word inheritance three times, and he's told those believers at the church at Ephesus, you have an inheritance guaranteed by God, by His Spirit, who has sealed you into the day of redemption. You've got that inheritance because of Christ, not because of you. So he's made it very clear there is an inheritance for believers. But those who are living a sinful, unrepentant lifestyle, don't kid yourself. There is no inheritance because the inheritance is in Christ. So I don't have time to look at those verses, but they're there. You can look at them on your own. Coveting is linked with idolatry. Uh, Here it talks about those who are covetous, that is, an idolater. The idea here is a covetous person makes an idol or god out of his or her own desires. In the present context, the idolatry has to do with sexual ethics and expressions. That I, I will choose for myself my identity. And in that desire, you find that you've got no entrance in the kingdom of heaven because I don't get to define myself. And if I could, it would not be an improvement on what God has already done. He has created me in his image, and I am to be like him, like his son. And as I'm conformed to the image of his son, I find that my own expressions and my own sinful desires are squashed And I I reflect the fruit of the Spirit, which is Christ's grace in me. So that's the idea of linking that which is covetous with idolatry. Um, Elsewhere, elsewhere Paul includes other sinful lifestyles in this condemnation. Uh, In other words, here he's only mentioned three categories. There's at least two other passages where the list is greater. Uh, The quick list out of 1 Corinthians would include the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. But if you go to Galatians chapter 5, the list is even greater, and that's just a few pages back in your Bible. So if you're in Ephesians, just go to the book immediately before Ephesians, and you'll find the book of Galatians. And in Galatians, you have the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh. So Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Read like this, and it's very similar to what he's already, or what he's written to the Ephesians. Ephesians, or Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. So far, we've heard those things before. Then he adds sorcery, enmity, Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It just will not. If your life is controlled by your sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, don't be deceived by it. If sin is your master, if Christ isn't Lord of your life, it doesn't mean you don't struggle with sin. I'm not saying that. And there may be episodes and times where God's grace is not waxing strong. But God's grace is going to win the day in a believer's life. And you will be made more like Christ. Because if sin is your master, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. 
The second part of the warning, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you with vain words, words that have no effect, words that aren't true, words that aren't going to produce what they promise. They come up empty. Who was deceived? It starts back in the Garden of Eden, right, with Adam and Eve? Eve was deceived. Adam blatantly treasoned against God. Eve was deceived. The serpent said to her, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And she corrected the serpent's misinterpretation, misunderstanding. And then the serpent came back, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And she saw the fruit was pleasant to the eyes. It looked like it would taste good. And so she took some of the fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her. And he knew better. But he said, I don't care. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to side with my wife on this, on this occasion. And he ate too. And the world was plunged into the curse of sin. She was deceived. But Paul, when he's talking about deception, he's not talking about not eating a particular type of fruit that is in a particular garden. So what deceptions is Paul saying we ought not to be deceived by? It's pretty easy. You can extrapolate it and say it different ways if I put verses 5 and 6 together. But it looks, looks like this, things like this, that a person unrepentant of his or her sinful lifestyle can have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If you believe that, you're deceived. If you think you are walking in fellowship with an altogether holy God and you are living your life your way, you're deceived. You're not in step with God. You're in step with the devil. You're just deceived to think otherwise. Another way to put it, you're deceived if you think that the entirety of the gospel can be summed up by saying God's love ensures no one will face God's wrath against sin. R.C. Sproul used to talk about in America, we believe in justification by death. No matter who you are or how you lived, when you died, you're justified. You go to the kingdom of heaven just because you died. Justification is in Christ, not in death. Another way to put it, a deception is that because love is love, everyone's own preferred expression of love is acceptable to God. If you believe that, you're deceived. One last one, that the God of the Old Testament was angry and judgmental, but the new God of the New Testament, revealed by Jesus, is exclusively a God of love. There is no less judgment and wrath in the New Testament than there was in the Old Testament. In fact, the demonstration of God's wrath is greater in the New Testament than the Old Testament. It's not diminished, it's satisfied Christ. All that wrath that you see expressions of from God, a holy God against sin in the Old Testament, is poured out on Christ on the cross. The wrath is there. It's satisfied in Christ. It's not just swept under the rug. It was dealt with by God himself where he satisfied his own righteousness and holiness and that sin must be dealt with. Paul says it's because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's a very interesting phrase. And I want to open it up for comments and questions in just a moment here. But uh, there, the implications of that are strong. Uh, 
and I'll, I'll just get you started down the path and you can kind of think through these categories. One of the messages I heard from time to time growing up, and I've read from time to time in a book, something along the lines of uh, the only sin that will ever damn you to hell is the sin of rejecting Christ. Because every other sin has been dealt with by Christ on the cross. Paul says, because of these things, the sins I just named, the wrath of God is poured out. Sins have to be paid for. They're dealt with by somebody. They will either be paid for, God's wrath will either be satisfied by Christ's death or by the sinner. But the unrepentant sinner... If he lives in his unrepentance, I will suggest to you, while Christ's death is sufficient to pay the sins of the world, any who believe, it's sufficient. But its effects are limited to those who, in fact, do believe. Because Christ didn't suffer for the sins of those who would never believe, and now God's demanding payment a second time. That's double indemnity. Sins are paid for one time, either by Christ or by the sinner. God doesn't demand payment twice. Christ didn't die and pay for sins of those who would never believe. The same thing is said in Colossians. Paul says because of these things, these sins, the wrath of God is poured out. They have not been dealt with. I think that's the end of what I've got. The two verses, 5 and 6 together, then the obvious conclusion, verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. And by partners, he doesn't mean that you are not to have a a gospel witness with unbelievers. He will deal with that uh, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's, I'm not saying you don't have anything to do with unbelievers. You can't go out of the world. But among the church... If you've got somebody who in the church is living this unrepentant, sinful lifestyle, Paul does say you need to pull out of that. There needs to be be an isolation so that they are saved yet through the skin of their teeth. What are your comments and questions? Carrie. It's not surprising that unbelievers uh, live by a different... They're under the deception of of what is wrong. He's saying among believers, the church ought not to compromise the message of God and give people assurances that they're in the kingdom of heaven when they're slaves to their sin. Actually, the best evangelist, revivalist evangelist I ever heard was uh, probably, who knows when it was, it was like 35 years ago, maybe it was at Latham Baptist Church, so Warrensburg-Latham, Latham Baptist Church. There was an evangelist, his name was, I think, his last name was Zaspel. I think his first name was Fred Zaspel. Somebody said, you ought to hear him, I think he's, you'll like him. I went to hear Fred Zaspel, and it, it, was very, it was not like the revivalists and evangelists I heard growing up, which were very emotionally manipulative. He taught God's word, and he said, when somebody comes to me for assurance of salvation, he's like, I don't give them assurance of salvation, I can't do that, that's the Holy Spirit's job. He said, I, I will point them to 1 John. You go read 1 John. You humble yourself before God and read 1 John, and God's Spirit will give you assurance of salvation. That's not my job. In fact, I would, be, I would be taking the role of the Holy Spirit. I might be giving somebody assurance where that's the last thing in the world they ever possibly need. I was like, 
blown away by Fred Zaspel. I think I've got those messages on cassette. I've often thought I should re-listen to them. Somebody else? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.